and welcome to Eerie Earth. I'm your host, Kieran, and I'll be guiding you on your journey through the paranormal. Together we will learn about hauntings, dark tales, and much more. So sit back, relax, and join me as we explore this eerie earth. Allow me to take you back in time to 1977 to a small council house situated at 284 Green Street in the borough of Enfield, London. This unassuming house is the home to the Hodgins family, who in the August of 1977 were subject to a horrendous and terrifying poltergeist attack, which became one of the most infamous paranormal cases in the world. Tonight I'm going to tell you the tale of the Enfield poltergeist. Our story begins on the 31st of August 1977 as Peggy Hodgins and her four children were enjoying a quiet evening in. They had enjoyed a lovely home-cooked meal together before the two boys, Billy and Johnny, took themselves off to bed, while the oldest of the four siblings, 13-year-old Margaret and 11-year-old Janet, stayed up with their mother, talking through the evening, watching TV and relaxing. When the clock on the wall chimed nine o'clock, Peggy ordered both Margaret and Janet to go to bed. The pair ventured upstairs, got changed into their pyjamas, brushed their teeth and went to bed. As the sisters lay in bed reading their magazines, quietly talking to one another, over the whispers they could hear gentle tapping coming from the wall behind them. To begin with, they ignored it, assuming it to be mice or water dripping down the wall. As their conversation went on, the tapping continued, getting louder and louder until it turned to loud banging, thumping from inside the wall. Scared, the girls screamed for their mother who was downstairs in the kitchen making a cup of tea to take to bed with her. She could hear the screaming and the banging coming from the bedroom but just assumed it was the girls playing and didn't play it much mind. The banging intensified and Janet jumped out of bed and got into Margaret's bed and the pair huddled together and Margaret began to stroke Janet's short mousy brown hair in an attempt to comfort her panicking sister or to try and calm herself down. As her sister tried in vain to comfort her, Janet noticed out of the corner of her eye a chest of drawers which was situated against the opposite wall had begun to shake and rock. At first she thought perhaps she imagined it moving or shimmered through the tears which were building up in her eyes, but that thought quickly diminished as the chest of drawers lunged towards them, the drawers coming out clattering on the floor and their clothes tumbling out. Peggy poured boiling water into her china cup watching the tea bag float to the top, getting increasingly frustrated with the noise that was coming from the girl's bedroom when a loud crash and a scream erupted above her. She threw the teaspoon on the surface and stormed out of the kitchen and up the stairs, her footsteps pounding on the carpet as she climbed the creaky staircase. She burst into the girl's bedroom to be greeted with a scene of carnage as she noticed clothes strewn all over the floor and the drawers laying next to them. The girls let out a terrifying scream as Peggy opened the door and they began to shout in a jumble of words about bangs and the chest of drawers moving. Furious, Peggy started filling the drawers again and putting them back in the cabinet and went to move it back against the wall. As she tried to push it, she found she was unable to move it and she used all of her might to push the waist-height dresser back when all of a sudden it shot forward again as if shot out of a cannon and smashed on the floor in front of the terrified trio. 
As soon as the dresser exploded against the wall, Peggy grabbed the petrified pair, grabbed her sons, and the four ran out of the house, screaming. Their neighbours, Peggy and Vic Nottingham, who were watching TV, suddenly heard a loud crash and screaming coming from next door. Vic jumped up and ran outside to witness the Hodgins barrel out of their home and into the street. Straight away he went to them, comforting them, taking them into this house, asking what happened. Peggy tried to explain the occurrences of the evening in a way that Vic would understand without sounding crazy, but as soon as the muddle of words poured out of her mouth, she realised that that would not be possible. Vic Nottingham was a large, muscular man, with tattoos plastered on his arms and large, callous fingers from years of working on the building sites. It would take an awful lot to phase the man, so when Peggy told him of the incidents within the walls of 284 Green Street, he was eager to get in there and have a look for himself. He left the Hodgins with his wife and approached the front door of the council house. As he pulled the handle to the door down and pushed it open, the house was silent. Only the sound of Vic's heartbeat in his ears could be heard. He swallowed hard as he approached the staircase. He kept telling himself not to be stupid to man up, but the house had a strange atmosphere, an eerie electric atmosphere. Slowly he climbed the stairs, his rough hands sliding along the banister, the sound of his rough skin on the wood breaking the silence. He reached the door to the girl's bedroom, which was now shut. The silence of the house was palpable. His heart beat louder now. He could feel it vibrate in his chest. His throat was dry and he could feel a bead of sweat roll down his back as he reached for the handle of the door to the girl's room. As soon as his coarse fingers touched the smooth handle, loud banging exploded from within the room, causing Vic to jump, his heart pounding against his chest. Eventually, the banging stopped and Vic plucked up the courage to open the door. He stretched from where he was stood and pulled the handle down, and the door swung open. He was faced with a quiet room. Apart from the damaged chest of drawers, nothing seemed amiss. He took a deep breath and stepped into the room. As he walked over the threshold, the banging started again, so violently that it shook the walls of the room. Vic darted out, the door slamming behind him. He lunged for the steps, taking two at a time, throwing himself out the front door, throwing it shut behind him. He burst through his own front door, slamming it shut, leaning against it, breathing heavily. The sun rose the following morning, a new day, but the memories of the night before were still fresh in everybody's mind, as the Hodgins woke up on the floor of the Nottingham's living room. Vic had not slept all night, trying to work out what had happened in the council house next door. What could have caused the violent banging coming from within the eldest Hodgins sibling's bedroom? After a lengthy discussion with Peggy Hodgins, both Vic and his wife decided that the best course of action was to call the police. Maybe they could shed some light on the events. Two officers arrived at the house around 10am that morning to be met with Mrs Hodgins and Vic Nottingham. They entered the house and all seemed calm. No noises from the rooms above, no strange feelings, but both officers noticed how uncomfortable both Vic and Peggy were as they stood in the hallway. They described what happened the night before as Peggy poured tea into four cups on the counter in the kitchen and laid them down on the table with some biscuits. The two officers, Vic and Peggy, discussed the events for about half an hour when one of the officers noticed something out the corner of her eye. A chair which was sitting in the hallway began to move towards them. The officers investigated the chair but could find no explanation for the strange occurrence. It came off the 
floor, a, ha a half inch, I should say. I saw it slide off to the right about uh, three and a half to, to maybe four feet before it, it came to a rest. And um, I, I checked to see if it could have possibly slid across the floor. So I, I placed a marble on the floor to see whether or not the, um, you know, the marble would go in the same direction as the chair did. And it didn't. It didn't roll at all. And um, I, I checked for wires under the cushion, under the chair, and could find no explanation at all. The officers left after investigating the whole house, including the basement, but were unable to find any explanation for the strange occurrences witnessed within the home. Peggy felt lost. She felt that she had no choice but to go to the media in the hopes that someone could read the article and be able to offer up some advice about what to do next. On September 4th, 1977, Peggy contacted the Daily Mirror, who sent around two of their best journalists, Graham Morris and Douglas Bence. When they arrived at Green Street, nothing seemed to happen within the house. Everything was quiet. Even when the family tried to encourage the spirit to do something, nothing happened. Both Graham and Douglas felt that they were being conned and they packed up their belongings and left the property. No sooner had they left and reached the car had Vic come running out of the house, calling their name, shouting from across the street that it was happening again. The pair grabbed their camera, their notepad and reluctantly made their way back to the council house to be greeted with a scene which chilled them to the bone. Pieces of Lego and marbles were being thrown around the living room at such force that some were being embedded into the wall. As Graham approached the middle of the room, he lifted his camera to take a picture of the plastic projectiles, but due to the force in which they were being thrown, he was unable to capture them in the photo. After several attempts at capturing the levitating Lego, Graham noticed a piece hover in the air in front of him for a few seconds, and he raised his camera. The building block was thrown at his head, hitting him between the eyes with such force that it drew blood. As Douglas helped Graham with his injury, they noticed that Peggy and Vic had started to hide knives and plates to prevent them from becoming the next projectiles. Following the publication of the article and the pictures taken on the day of the visit, people could not believe the stories which were written in the newspapers, because when the pictures were published, they didn't include any of the supposed objects which were being thrown around because they were being thrown so fast that they couldn't be captured on camera. The journalists were so concerned with the family's well-being that they got in contact with the Society of Psychical Research and explained what had happened within their home. Intrigued, the Society sent one of their best investigators, a man called Morris Gross, who along with his colleague and author Guy Lyon Playfair visited the infamous house on Green Street to help the family. Peggy was watching TV with Janet and Margaret when there was a knock at the door. Peggy answered it to be greeted by a small balding man with a blonde handlebar moustache, a beige overcoat and a large brown suitcase. He held out a small chubby hand and introduced himself as Morris Gross. He shook his hand and welcomed him into her home. As soon as Morris entered he got a strong sense that there was something not quite right within the council house and promised Peggy that he would get to the bottom of whatever was plaguing the family. After spending some time with the family, getting to know them and getting to understand what had been happening within the home, Morris wanted to try several experiments. One such experiment involved setting up a camera which was on a timer and would take pictures at 5 second intervals. The camera was set up in the girl's bedroom as that was one of the most active places. On the first night, the camera caught one of the most compelling and famous pictures in paranormal history. 
The picture showed Janet lying from a horizontal position, and then in the next photo showed her soaring through the air as if being thrown from the bed, a feat only made possible by someone who is very athletic, which Janet was. Another photo which was taken showed a pillow which rolled off Janet's bed and almost walked towards the camera before falling on the ground, something which is physically impossible. While Morris was incredibly excited about the photos, convinced that it was a genuine evidence of the paranormal, Guy Lyon Playfair, who joined Morris shortly after his arrival at the Hodgins, did not agree. While the pair of investigators disagreed with each other on the events and the evidence, it would not take long before Morris Gross concluded that the family were in fact being haunted by a pesky poltergeist. Coming up on Eerie Earth, I will tell you more about one of the most infamous hauntings in the world. Welcome back to Eerie Earth. Allow me to continue with the story of the infamous Enfield poltergeist, where things are about to take an interesting turn when Janet would report being possessed by the spirit. On a cold night in December 1977, Janet was curled up in bed and her sister asleep in the bed next to her. Their mother and Morris Gross were downstairs in the living room. As Janet slept, peaceful and quiet, she was awoken by the feeling of ice-cold hands on her arms and legs. Her covers were ripped off the bed and she was thrown to the floor and dragged along the carpet and out of the door, the door opening on its own. She screamed as she was dragged along the corridor to the top of the stairs, flung headfirst down the steep staircase right to the bottom, landing in a heap as Peggy and Morris ran to her aid. Morris could not come up with an explanation for the inexplicable reason that Janet was thrown from her bed. Upon hearing this, the SBR sent over two more investigators to the Enfield house to help Morris out in dealing with a plethora of strange goings-on within the property. Dr. John Bailoff and Anita Gregory. Both investigators claimed that they did not witness any evidence to suggest that the family were being plagued by a supernatural entity that in fact the girls were causing the events within the house as some odd childhood prank. Pranks which they would be caught doing by Morris and Guy several times before, including hiding Morris's tape recorder and claiming that it was the work of the poltergeist. However, it would conspire that it would be more difficult to explain the strange occurrences when the girls claimed they were communicating with the spirit. Morris Gross has spent nearly 18 months with the family studying and investigating the supposed haunting of the council house in Green Street, Enfield. His various experiments had not yielded any conclusive evidence, but that was not going to deter Morris. He was determined to find some evidence to prove that the Hodgins were being plagued by a poltergeist. The events at the house had attracted more and more attention from television crews, newspapers from around the world who wanted to get in touch with the family, to conduct interviews and to come to visit the house to try and catch a glimpse of the supposed hauntings, much to the disdain of Peggy who just wanted things to go back to the way they were. It even attracted the attention of famed investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, who in 1978 came to the property to see for themselves if the supposed incidents were in fact paranormal. 
They concluded that the family were victims of a genuine spiritual possession, which fueled Morris's obsession in the case. However, things were going to take a much more sinister turn when Margaret and Janet admitted to Morris that they'd been communicating with the spirit, or rather the spirit had been communicating with them. One bitterly cold day in the winter of 1978, Janet was in her room reading one of her magazines, minding her own business, while Peggy was out doing some shopping. Margaret was downstairs in the kitchen and the boys were in the garden playing. Enthralled in her magazine, Janet failed to notice that the atmosphere in the room had begun to change. It had become heavier, more foreboding. Slowly, she started to notice the change, looked up and over the pages. The room was empty. She went back to reading, but started to feel a sharp pain in the back of her neck, a pain as if someone had scratched her with their nail. She took a quick intake of breath and began to rub her neck, rolling her head back and forth. As time went on, the pain intensified, causing Janet to drop her magazine to rub her neck more intensely. She turned around to see if something could have scratched her, when all of a sudden, a deep guttural voice bellowed out of her mouth. Janet. Terrified, she threw her hand over her mouth in shock. The scratching feeling left her and the atmosphere lifted. She was alone on the floor of her bedroom. A few weeks passed and the voice had happened a few times, but this time with more words and even full sentences. The voice appeared to be coming from Janet's throat and she was not moving her lips. She told Margaret about the strange occurrence but didn't want to tell her mother in case she worried. Eventually, after the voice had kept her up all night, she told Morris about the voice. Morris gathered the girls and their mother in the siblings' bedroom and asked Janet to sit on the bed. Margaret joined her. Morris removed a large reel-to-reel tape recorder and placed it on the bed. The whirring of the cogs were booming in the silence of the bedroom. Morris asked for the spirit to communicate with him like he'd done with Janet. After a few moments of silence, the room was filled with the sound of barking and whistling. It was coming from Janet, although she was not moving her lips. Morris got frustrated and told the spirit that if he could make noises, then he could talk. He asked the spirit to say his name, and a gruff male voice eventually responded. Morris. This was all he needed to convince himself that the family was being haunted, and he moved on to the next experiment, a dedicated EVP session with the spirit. Without hesitation, Morris arranged to have the girls come together with himself, Guy Playfair, the news reporters Graham Morris and Douglas Bentz who filmed the experiment, Peggy Hodgins and Vic and Peggy Nottingham. They gathered around the sofa with Janet center stage and Margaret sitting next to her for moral support. Morris placed a large tape recorder on a small table in front of Janet and placed a microphone facing her. Excitedly, he asked Janet if she was comfortable and willing to continue. She nodded, rubbing her neck with a pained expression on her face. As Morris pressed the button on the recorder and asked if there was anyone there, before the last word left his mouth, there was a guttural growl which emanated from deep within Janet's throat. Perplexed and like a child who was about to open their biggest present at Christmas, he continued. Is there anybody there? He asked. Suddenly, a deep voice growled from Janet's throat, her lips not moving. My name's Bill Wilkins. I'm 52 years old and I come from Doohan's Park Graveyard. 
been judged. It's where I spent all my time. All my friends come from there as well. And we all make a game and go to the pub. But we like your house. Because I used to be here. And I'll stay here. And you will go anywhere else. Morris went on to ask the spirit how he died. I went blind. Had an embryo and fell asleep. I died in a chair in the corner downstairs. Morris was convinced that he was witnessing something paranormal. While his colleague Guy Playfair and even his colleagues at the Society of Psychical Research were not entirely convinced. Throughout the whole saga, they had thought that because the case involved young children, that perhaps this was a very elaborate childish prank. The voice coming from Janet was one which stumped the investigators, but they couldn't rule out that Janet having the ability to perform ventriloquism. It is very interesting to note that the information shared by the entity was incorrect. While Bill Wilkins is reported to have died in the house, it is reported on his death certificate that he died of a blood clot in his heart and not of a brain hemorrhage as stated by the spirit. He also died when he was 61 and not 52. One of the final inconsistencies the spirit claims is that Bill Wilkins was laid to rest in Durant Park Cemetery, which is a stone's throw away from 284 Green Street, but in actual fact he was buried in Lavender Hill Cemetery. While many would argue it would be near impossible for a young girl of 11 to know those facts, the truth is that Vic Nottingham's father, Fred Nottingham, lived next door to the Wilkins at 282 Green Street and was a shoulder to cry on and helped them out when Bill died and was very much there for his wife, Ethel. What's also very interesting to note is that at no point during the events of the haunting or when the information was uttered by the spirit, did Vic Nottingham confirm or deny any of the information? The final piece of information to note is that the entity also called himself Fred, which was the name of Vic Nottingham's father, who died in 1972, when Janet was only seven years old. A few weeks passed and Morris began to get more and more obsessed with the case, to the point that the SPR grew tired of his refusal to accept any other possibility other than the paranormal, and they took him off the case. By 1980, events at the Enfield House had begun to quieten down and the interest in the investigation began to dwindle. Many people believe that the occurrences recorded within the house were faked by the children, Janet admitted to faking some of the occurrences within the house, but not all of them. The story of the haunting has been immortalised in books, films and TV shows, most recently appearing in the Conjuring universe. It is an investigation which has paranormal enthusiasts discussing to this day. Everyone has their own opinion on the strange occurrences that happened within the house, and Janet and Margaret still to this day claim that the events really happened. Morris Gross died in 2006 and was still obsessed with the case right up until his death. Peggy Hodgins lived in the house until her death in 2003, while Janet and Margaret left home and lived very normal lives, neither reporting any strange paranormal phenomena again. Thank you very much for listening, and if you've missed an episode of Eerie Earth, you can subscribe to Midnight.fm to gain access to the archive to catch up on any of my shows. Join me next week while I'll be telling you two tales of cryptozoology, the Enfield Monster and the Loch Ness Monster. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye for now.